All podcasters know the best way to grow your show is through word of mouth. And so this season, we're trying something new. We created a referral link that makes it easy to share the podcast by text, email, or DM to your friends, family, or anyone else you know who could use a little dose of inspiration for civic engagement and our collective future. If you use the link to share our show with five friends who then download the podcast, I'll send you a handwritten thank you note and a future hindsight button to thank you for your support. If you share it with 10 friends who download an episode, I'll send you a branded Future Hindsight Moleskin Notebook. Yup, a real Moleskin Notebook with our logo on it. Follow the link in the show notes to help us spread the word. And thank you so much for listening. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Zach Carter. He's the author of The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes. He's also a senior reporter at HuffPost, where he covers economic policy and American politics. This biography of Keynes really gives us a perspective of what he was thinking of within the context of his time. In between two world wars, severe economic downturns, including the Great Depression in the United States, the rise of communism, fascism, and revolution. His theories were largely driven by a desire to create a type of policy glue that would help our society hang together. During his time, humanity faced a crisis of governance and economies and a sense of deep uncertainty that is similar to what we're experiencing today. We take a look at how Keynes's ideas from the 20th century can show the way forward for a strong economic recovery in the United States, a possible large-scale solution to the climate crisis, and a more equitable future. He's a thinker who concerned himself with the great problems of his day. He was not concerned primarily with debt and deficits, although he became famous for it, but rather with a way of grappling with crisis and with a condition that he referred to as uncertainty, which he believed to be sort of fundamental to the way human beings think about the world around them and make decisions about the world around them. And he became convinced that economics and wise economic policy was a way to not only pursue social justice in Britain, but to prevent international conflict. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So your book is really fantastic. I recommend everybody read it and understand who Keynes is. But let's start with the basics. Who was Keynes and how would he define his economic theory? Keynes is one of the most fascinating intellects and personas from the 20th century. He was really more, I think, of a, of a philosopher first and foremost, who kind of stumbled into economics through a series of coincidences and uh, became one of the most powerful policymakers eventually in the British Empire by World War II. And uh, he's a thinker who concerned himself with the, the great problems of his day. He was not concerned primarily with debt and deficits, although he became famous for it, but rather with a way of grappling with crisis and with a condition that he referred to as uncertainty, which he believed to be sort of fundamental to the way human beings think about the world around them and make decisions about the world around them. So for him, the big crisis that shook him was World War One. He believed it to be a a horror so unthinkable, it had never really occurred to him as a young man that such an event might be possible. 
And it changed the way that he thought about everything in his life, from uh, the British Empire to art to the practice of economics. And he devoted the second half of his life, essentially, to trying to come up with ways to avoid that type of calamity in the future. And he became convinced that economics and wise economic policy was a way to not only pursue social justice in Britain, but to prevent international conflict. Not a whole lot of thinkers from the 20th century tried to grapple with all of those ideas as part of the same project. And uh, along the way, he ends up you know, becoming best friends with Virginia Woolf and uh, offering a job to T.S. Eliot and marrying the most famous ballerina in Europe. I think what was really interesting to me was that his objectives were revolutionary. And I think people in those days didn't think about economics, which was still a fledgling field of study at the time, as something that could actually solve humanity's problems. What were his objectives with his policy prescriptions? Keynes was trying to find a, a sort of policy glue that would help societies hang together. He believed the peace treaty at the end of World War I, the Treaty of Versailles, was written in such a way that it would make it impossible for any of the nations, victor or vanquished, to rebuild themselves economically. And that this economic disruption was going to encourage the development of authoritarianism domestically within different countries in Europe and the United States. But it was also going to encourage international conflict as people saw their own domestic misery, witnessed their governments shipping you know, war debts overseas to foreign creditors, and then blaming not just foreign creditors, but foreigners for their own domestic misery. He thought that the British Empire was a force for you know, justice and prosperity and democracy around the world. And he was a little bit nervous about working people and about uh, political parties associated with working people. But after World War I, he came to believe that if the government didn't take some fairly radical economic action, then a more radical political outcome would become inevitable. He believed that societies would become vulnerable to revolution internally and then to war and conquest externally. He became interested in the study of inequality and how to alleviate it as a practical matter for preventing conflict and preserving the sort of things that he enjoyed as a member of the British sort of quasi-elite. He had friends who were these great artists in um, London's Bloomsbury neighborhood, people like Virginia Woolf and uh, her sister Vanessa Bell, Lytton Strachey was another great writer there. And they, would, they would go off and hang out with Pablo Picasso at Montparnasse and come back and, and tell Keynes about everything that was going on while they're getting their hair cut and drinking champagne. So he wanted to keep that kind of lifestyle and he thought revolution and war was, was something that would be very threatening to it. So at first, I think for somewhat self-interested reasons, he becomes interested in inequality. But as he studies economics more and more and really develops what we would now call the field of macroeconomics, it doesn't really exist until Keynes starts doing his work as an economist in the 1920s. As he develops that, he comes to think that the sort of questions that economists have traditionally concerned themselves with, questions about scarcity and production, are the wrong sort of questions for the 20th century. The questions they need to answer are questions about uncertainty and how to guide people and countries through times where the future seems more tenuous than it has in the past. Right. Thank you for describing it very thoroughly and, and also <laughs> briefly at the same time. That's very hard to do. I was really struck by 
FDR's comments right after he took office, which seemed to me to be directly coming from Keynes. And I felt like they both understood that what matters most is assuaging the fears of everyday people, that they're safe, that there will be a tomorrow, that their money will be worth something, that their jobs will be there. And I think this idea that there is less inequality and therefore more stability for society is somehow underappreciated. Why is it that we are still sort of feeling like that's obscured from us? It's a, it's a fantastic question. And I think the the answer is, is very complicated. In the 1920s and 1930s, this idea that uh, severe inequality would lead to destabilization or instability or, or revolution even was not uh, just a kooky, wild, left-wing thought. This was something that people like Herbert Hoover, who worked with Keynes at the Treaty of Versailles, was very much afraid of at the time as well. But this idea that if something drastic wasn't done, there would be either a communist revolution or a fascist coup of some sort, was very, very widely shared among people who I think we'd refer to as broadly as sort of liberals, enlightenment liberals. And these people were all over European government and also American government. And so Keynes, and one of his geniuses at least, was his ability to sort of systematize that liberal enlightenment instinct into a set of a, a coherent philosophy, which he could then apply to the real world, and which then seemed very intuitive to people when they would read it. But Keynes's ideas, as he writes, uh, both for the public as a journalist and also for economists, particularly in the general theory of employment, interest, and money, his, his big magnum opus that comes out in 1936, those ideas start moving through other channels and getting to FDR. So there are people in his administration who are essentially Keynesian economists who are pumping these ideas into FDR's mind for, for really from a very early standpoint. You know, before the general theory is written, Keynes has got most of his policy prescriptions for the depression already baked. He, he kind of comes up with his economic theory as a after the fact to sort of justify his policy prescriptions. But this idea about the connection between deflation, deprivation, inequality, and dictatorship is something that FDR's advisors are saying to him all the time. And these are people who are reading everything Keynes is, is writing. So that perspective is easier to understand when there has just been a world war and when many countries are, in fact, undergoing revolutions. You have Benito Mussolini coming to power in 1922. In 1924, you have Adolf Hitler's attempted coup in Germany. So these types of revolutionary events are happening all around. And the idea that revolution could be on the docket for your own country doesn't seem so alien. I think for the United States today, none of us have seen a world where the United States is not a dominant world power, where the idea of the United States not being able to meet the moment or take care of its people seemed serious. That may be changing. I hope it's not the pandemic is really doing a lot of damage to our society in ways that I think we're not quite grappling with. This is going to be a multi-year process for the country to deal with. And the idea that how that dealing with inequality is essential to how we deal with COVID in particular, I think is not super widely shared, but you can see in much of the economic literature that's being written about the pandemic and in some of the medical literature as well, that there is a very clear connection not only in the United States, but all over the world, between high levels of inequality and inept responses to the pandemic. So countries that have very severe levels of inequality 
have a hard time dealing with this. And I think that's a really important lesson. It's not just a lesson about war, as Keynes was pursuing in his own lifetime, but, but it's a lesson about crisis, that if, if you have a deeply unequal society, what you're really saying is that your society is in certain ways coming apart. It's being stretched too thin, and people aren't really living in the same political community in a meaningful sense anymore. And that means that your political community is incapable of treating itself when disaster arises, whether that's in the form of a political revolution or a, or a war or invasion, or whether it's uh, the, the form of a virus that, uh, that people didn't see coming. Wow. So I have a lot of questions now <laughs> that I did not prepare, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> but let's go one by one, because I think we should talk about unemployment. We should talk about inequality and about policies that can address both of those things in the short term and the long term. Future Hindsight is brought to you this week by Jordan Harbinger and his chart-topping podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan has been a staple in the podcast game for the last few years and was named one of Apple's best of 2018. Once you listen to his show, it's easy to see why. Like me, Jordan produces long-form interviews aimed at making you think critically about the issues facing the world today. Though you may not have heard of his guest, you'll definitely learn something new. Jordan might be interviewing a former MI6 agent one day, a NASA astronaut the next, and a reformed mob enforcer the day after that. The best part is that Jordan always pulls helpful facts and interesting tidbits from anyone. The Jordan Harbinger Show will keep you engaged, entertained, and informed. What more could you ask for? If you like Future Hindsight, I think you'll enjoy the Jordan Harbinger Show, too. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find the show at jordanharbinger.com. One of the things that Keynes believed is that unemployment leads to fascism. What we have seen in this country, in the U.S., there's definitely fascism here. I saw a picture of somebody at the gas station with a mask with a swastika on his face, basically on his mask. And I thought... Oh, people are so misguided. Don't you know? We went to war. But what is a way to deal with unemployment? What's possible? It's a complicated question because in many respects, we kind of want unemployment in a certain sense to be high. At least we want people not to be working under conditions in which they would spread a deadly plague. The economic problem in our current moment is a little bit different than the type of economic problem that Keynes became famous for solving because in a recession, Keynes would just say, well, we want people to go back to work. And in order to get them back to work, the government should spend a lot of money, either by cutting checks for people, giving them tax cuts, or by his favorite method, doing public works, creating large-scale investment projects that put people directly to work. And that would give the economy a boost. The basic point was that he wanted people to be working again. Right now, it's not obvious that we want people to be working and that, and that people working is a particularly good solution at least in the near term, to what's going wrong in this crisis. But the problems are very similar. Unemployment is not just a lack of funds, right? It's, it's not just that people get down and out in unemployment, not only because they don't have enough money to buy stuff, whether it's you know, luxuries or, or basic necessities, they get down and out because they don't feel like they're part of society. They're not going out and participating in the creation of the stuff that it is that makes people come together and, and either do commerce and exchange items or just be together and trade ideas and beliefs. That's a very 
isolating, depressing, and I think uh, potentially revolutionary state of mind for someone to be in, particularly for long periods of time. So what can we do about that? Um, that is a, going to be a huge question for the Biden administration. But at least in the short term, you have to treat the pandemic. If you do not treat the pandemic, you cannot get the economic recovery underway. After that, you, you have to take care of people's incomes. Make sure that people don't just go broke because they don't have a job. So you need to support people's incomes. And that means that indirectly, people downstream financially are going to be receiving funds from the people who you give them to. So you give money to someone who needs to pay their bills, they pay their cable bill, the cable company gets this money. A whole lot of defaults don't happen if you just give the money to people who need to have their lifestyles supported. But Broadly, there's this big, big overhang for the entire problem, which is that COVID-19 is not just about people failing to go to work. COVID-19 is in many ways a symptom of the style of globalization that we've done since the 1990s breaking down. We've seen nurses treating the sick in trash bags. Uh, you know, we, we couldn't get masks for a long time. We couldn't get ventilators. The way that goods are produced and distributed around the world is not functioning particularly well. I think as economies and production attempts to get going again in different parts of the world, we're going to see supply chains that aren't operating the way we would like them to. And we also have this terrible climate crisis coming down the barrel. There's an enormous amount of work that needs to be done addressing all these problems. And these problems, I, I don't think, are going to go away once the immediate threat of the pandemic is passed. And I, I don't think we can go back to a 2018 economy when this is over. I, I don't think there's just some way to, to restart this. There have to be some pretty big structural changes in the way the world works. And those are going to be difficult changes to make, but they're not impossible changes. Countries always have a greater potential for very rapid change than we typically believe they are capable of. Keynes went into World War II, Britain went into World War II with a terrible unemployment, a completely dysfunctional manufacturing center, and came out of it with uh, the National Health Service and the modern British welfare state. It, these were policy ideas that had seemed unthinkable in the 1920s and 1930s. It is very much possible that we can, we can get to 2023 and 2024 and be living in a totally different world than we are living in now, but it will require leadership for that to happen. I certainly don't think the leadership in Congress or in the White House right now is capable of that, but that could change uh, and it could change very quickly. Yeah, indeed. Actually, I think what is really interesting about the book is that visionary leaders really take the bull by the horn and go for it. You know, I mean, if you look at FDR, it's the kind of thing where I think at the time, people, of course, were so desperate that they voted for him in a huge landslide. But all this to say also that he ran with it. If they were a Keynesian in the Biden administration, what would be the first thing to do, aside from writing checks and making sure people have money to spend until they can work again? And once they can work again, what should we be doing? Well, Keynes had this sort of amazing ability to devise these grand schemes that would attempt to kill two or more birds with one stone. He would do these things that would, it would take care of the war debts and it would deal with inequality and it would fend off revolution and it would bring more opera houses to, uh, <laughs> to every, every capital in Europe or something. He would always have these multiple, multiple goals for this one project. Um, and I think in this case, climate change is 
just very, very hard to avoid dealing with. If you're going to be spending enormous amounts of money, and, and we'll have to spend enormous amounts of money to rebuild our economy when this is over, the question is what you spend it on. And we currently have an economy that is hurtling the world towards ecological destruction. And uh, the science on this has been clear for decades. It would be crazy, I think, for someone of a Keynesian perspective to advise the Biden administration to do anything other than take a massive effort to decarbonize the American economy and to make international agreements to do the same. And so I would put you know, a very, very high premium on decarbonizing the economy. That means everything from changing the way that we create electricity in the country to overhauling insulation in homes and buildings. An enormous amount of construction work is involved in that project. Certainly if the private sector is capable of doing it, it has not done it to date. So I think for a lot of these issues, in order for the private economy to get involved, the public economy has to take a very big step and make very large investments so that private investments can become profitable. And I think Keynes would see some sort of decarbonization program, I can call it a Green New Deal, whatever you want, as a matter of paramount importance, the way that FDR saw the Public Works Administration as a matter of paramount importance or, or the reforms to the Federal Reserve that he, that he did it in his tenure in office. Your, your point about FDR as a, as a visionary, I think is important because FDR not only created these big, important and long lasting programs, he came into office convinced that fascism was right around the corner in the United States. I mean, around Inauguration Day, there were judges in Iowa who were foreclosure judges for farm cases who were being dragged out of the courtrooms with ropes around their necks. There was a very, very nasty feeling in much of the country. And Roosevelt believed that what had happened in Germany, as he and Hitler came to power in the same year, could be happening in the United States. And he took that threat seriously. And so he was very, very aggressive about the types of policies he was willing to implement to meet them. He understood the stakes, in, in short. I think the Biden administration is going to need to recognize the stakes in order to take the kind of action that's necessary to fend off political and economic disaster in this country. And I think there's some reason for optimism about that. There is a real sense, even among veterans of the Obama administration, that the response to the crisis of 2008 was inadequate, that they needed to do more to not only make people feel like they were part of the same political project, but to actually engage them in the political project. You know, one of the things that Keynes was adamant about was that our problems were created by human beings and human beings were capable of solving them. We did not face any task as a society that we could not, in fact, cope with. It was just a matter of summoning the will and sort of the faith to believe that tomorrow could, in fact, be better than today. And uh, that's a hard thing to do. It requires leadership to instill that feeling and belief in people. But it's a necessary thing that good political leaders do. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, well, the question I have now is about, you know, spending on decarbonizing the U.S. How would that address inequality in our society here in the U.S. if we were to embark on a giant spending project? It depends on how the project is designed, of course. You know, you need to be getting people <laughs> good paying jobs. Unemployment is a devastating thing for an economy because it's the easiest way to permanently undercut somebody's living standards. If, if you are 
unemployed for a long period of time, it is much, much harder to get back to work at a good job on a career path where promotion and higher wages and more security is in your future. That's just very well established. But the type of job and the type of work that needs to be done is, I think, inherently kind of good paying work. We are talking about rather sophisticated technologies here with green energy being involved, but also some very straightforward construction work. And people forget that construction work can pay quite well. Construction companies just often don't like to pay it, <laughs> but it, it, is, <laughs> it is an industry where people do make very good livings. So there's, there's just an enormous amount of stuff that we can get people doing and get people out of conventional minimum wage work. And in the process, I think also for people who will be working minimum wage jobs, raise that wage. Because when you have people at work making more money, it puts upward pressure on wages for everybody. So that's part of the answer. The other part of the answer is that the idea that the economy is separate from the government is a very sort of recent idea in economic thinking. It's something that becomes very popular after the 1970s. It was not very popular in the 50s and 60s. There was a belief that the government had to manage the economy, and if it did not manage the economy, the economy would not actually work. And so the government could decide on some level how high wages were going to be, and it had a responsibility to manage how good the jobs in society were. The sort of overriding belief about how economies work over the last 30 years has been that there are market forces at play that the government can't really meddle with. It can maybe make some impact at the margins, but the government can't set these policies and change these forces. And I think Keynes would have been very skeptical about that way of looking at the world. He sort of viewed economics and money as more of a tool than a set of rules, something that could be used to tinker with society in a way, rather than something that society was incapable of tinkering with. Right. Well, he wrote that he argued that basically economics is really an extension of politics, you know, that it is a tool of the government in order to ensure jobs or exercise monetary policy and set interest rates, you know. I have a question about how we can demand as everyday people that we actually spend money in a way that affects everyday people, as opposed to, once again, only bailing out banks, let's say, or big corporations like what's happening now, and actually have the government serve its people even at a deficit, and we're running a deficit anyway. But so what are two things I could be doing as an everyday person to be like, okay, you need to do the right thing. I want to make sure you spend it in the right way. Well, uh, I would say the first thing I recommend for people is that they take care of themselves and, uh, <laughs> and and not get sick. That is your first duty in a pandemic is to survive it. You will not be able to express yourself politically if you cannot express yourself at all. That said, I think it's been pretty clear from the financial crisis on that politicians, both in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, respond more to actions than they do to letters and votes. So it is often helpful during a particularly close vote over a, a particular issue in Congress for people to, to flood uh, a, a particular congressman or, or you know, senator's office with, with phone calls. Um, that can work, but it, it works only when there's already a vote underway and there is already some sort of action on the agenda for Congress. It's very difficult to get Congress to put things on the agenda by writing a letter to your congressman. But if what you really want is to make big demands of, of the government, 
the government listens when people get in the streets. Getting people in the streets is not sufficient for change. Just because they're protests doesn't mean that political leaders respond. But when the government is not responsive, as and I think it, it has really failed in a really distressing way with the coronavirus pandemic. So when, when you are left out of the political equation like that, it's important to create your own politics. You have to work with your communities to address leaders, whether they're local leaders in the case of police reform or national leaders in the case of these big fiscal projects. And I think it's unlikely that we're going to see a whole lot of relief until January at the earliest. And that means there's a lot of time, the upside of that, for people to organize and to talk to each other. We have all of these great uh, communications tools for the 21st century that people can use to talk about what their communities need. And if you can get people together talking about these things, that's politics. Contact your neighbors and find out what they need to get through this and just, just listen to them. That's what representatives are supposed to do. They don't do it as well as I think they should. But just finding out what your neighbors need is itself something that I think is an important political act, which can ultimately be used when we have leaders who are willing to listen again. Well, here's my last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? <laughs> oh, don't uh, laugh. No, don't laugh. <laughs> It's a serious question. But seriously, I mean... I mean, I, I detect that you're an optimist all in all. Yes. So, you know. Uh, yeah. I, Keynes was an inveterate optimist. He often to the point of, I think, delusion. But he always believed that however grave the problem was, society could solve it just by setting its mind to it. And the things that make me optimistic, I think, are the things that make other people optimistic. I have a, I have a one-year-old daughter. And when you have a one-year-old, you can't help but think about tomorrow and think about making the world a better place for her and something that will be exciting and wonderful to be a part of. Politically, I think what makes me optimistic is that for all the horrors that we've been through since 2008 or since 2003, I think the Iraq invasion was a real watershed moment for the United States in, in ways that we've still not fully grappled with. For all of these disappointments and disasters that have ensued, the country is still here and people still believe in each other. People think it's important to go out in the streets and, and protest for social justice. You know, th those protests for George Floyd, all kinds of people were out in the street, rich people, poor people, black people, white people, immigrants, children of immigrants, people whose families have been here for hundreds of years, uh, gay people, straight people. There was a genuine outpouring of community interest and care coming from the country. Democracy was happening. I don't think our current president believes in democracy. I think his fondness for foreign dictators is not faked. I think it's sincere. But I think the democratic spirit of the country is still very much alive and frankly, quite healthy. Our government is sick, but our country and you know our people, I think, are if anything, sort of awakened to the, the need for democracy in ways that maybe aren't as obvious during good times and, and weren't as obvious when we had more competent leaders in charge. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Thank you so much. This was really delightful. And thank you for your beautiful book. Thanks so much for having me, Mila. I really enjoyed it. My favorite part of this interview is that Keynes was always optimistic. I totally agree that our society can solve the problems it faces. Though, of course, it will take all of us to work together. In a very real sense, this biography is coming at just the right time to remind us that we have faced a similar crisis of inequality, unemployment and democracy amidst a worldwide pandemic. I hope that the new Biden administration will implement Keynesian policies 
prioritizing the well-being of humans and assuaging their fears, not only in order to rebuild our economy and have a shot at tackling the climate crisis, but also so that we can be a more resilient society going forward. Next week, our guest is Zephyr Teachout. She's an attorney, political activist, antitrust and corruption expert, and law professor at Fordham University. Her latest book is Break Em Up, Recovering Our Freedom from Big Ag, Big Tech, and Big Money. We talk about how monopolies are profoundly anti-democratic and hence why the United States needs to get serious about trust busting again, especially when it comes to companies like Amazon and Facebook. We used to have thousands of antitrust leagues all around the country in the late 19th century. Anti-monopoly was a core part of political activism really through the New Deal. And then in some ways, because FDR was so much a trust buster, he did it so well that it actually took some of the energy out of it. But we need to get back to not just having local environmental groups, but local antitrust groups. Until next time, Stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sion. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.